Welcome back to Spanning the State. I'm your host, Kristen Bry, along with Mike Spaulding, and we're talking college debt and student loans. How did we get here? So I'm so excited to talk to our next guest, who was former, formerly a professor at UW. Sarah Goldrick-Rab is the uh, author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream. And she is an expert on... How we got here and solutions to how we can make school. This is a choice that we can make school more affordable, more affordable. And so whether it's policy, whether it's funding. And so I'm so excited to welcome Sarah Goldrick Rab. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to have you. So one of the things that I think is not common knowledge is the great debate that happened in the 60s. As far as when we wanted as a country, we decided that it was uh Good for us to have more people going to college. And yet there was a discussion on who should pay for it. And so can you tell us more about how this our problem today really spans back to the 60s? Yeah, it definitely does. That's a time, like you said, when there was big lofty uh, federal policy goal was set. It essentially said that we think people should be able to go to college, not based on whether or not their family is wealthy but based on their talent and interest in going to college. And that's sort of the American dream, right? That if you work hard, you can get ahead. And if you want to learn more, that you can go to college. Well, at that time, they were trying to figure out how to do this. And they were also at the same time trying to figure out what the real problem was. And what policymakers concluded was that there was a small number of people from the very poorest families who would need help paying for college which I know is hard to believe now when the fact is that the vast majority of people need mm-hmm. help paying for college. So what they decided to do was fund these grants that would go only to the very lowest income people and essentially leave everyone else to go ahead and pay their bills. And so they created this program that's sort of like a voucher. And that is exactly what it does. It goes to individual students and they take it to colleges in different states. and They try to get a discount. But what they failed to understand was the behavior of those states. So, for example, they, in order to make college affordable, it has to be a partnership between the federal government and states. But a lot of states never agreed that college should become affordable. Hmm. So when the federal government put in more money, states did not. And over time, what that meant was that as states said, we don't really care whether or not you go to college, or you're on your own, then the price that they passed on to their constituents, their consumers, went up and up and up. As a result, that little tiny grant became really um, almost meaningless. So today, it pays for a very tiny fraction of attending college if you get a Pell Grant. And all that it offered to the rest of us, and even to those low-income people, were loans. So we're here in a system that was badly designed, that misunderstood both the people it was meant to serve and misunderstood states. And we're obviously also in a tremendous amount of student debt. So, so Sarah, you know, when when Kristen and I were kind of batting this around the office uh, last week and wanting to to dive in a little bit, we were talking to people who went to college in the the eighties and were able to work while going to school and literally pay per semester because of their part time or or maybe even full time job as they were going to school. I, I just feel like since that time to where we're at right now, we were talking about UW Madison for an out of state student. It's fifty nine thousand dollars a year. How did we get from? being able to pay most of your tuition with a part-time job to in 2025, if I'm going to school, I'm looking at a $30,000, $50,000 per year price tag. 
That's right. I mean, you, you are. And by the way, it's not just if you're out of state. It's if you're in state, too. And even if you're somebody on financial aid, you can't even really working full time pay this. It's that high. So, you know, there were a couple of things that were going on. Those people who went to college in the 80s were sort of lucky because there were policy changes that were happening in the 80s and they were being spearheaded by Ronald Reagan. But they hadn't yet trickled down to make tuition go up. And it really was the end of the 80s and in the early 90s that we saw the effects of Reagan's changes at the federal level and of state changes in the state of Wisconsin that basically said, yep, you know what? More people are interested in going to college. Let them. It's on their dime. And the state, as more and more people went to college, did not keep raising its investment in the, in the state institutions or nowhere in financial aid. So I'm not saying there wasn't more funding for whether it's UWM, what, you know, whether it's the technical colleges. There wasn't some more money put in over time, but it was nothing in comparison to the number of people going. So the pie was being divided smaller and smaller and smaller. And so these people who say, hey, I bootstrap my college, you know, my way through college and you should too. The irony is they did the opposite of bootstrap their way through college. They actually were made, able to go and able to work through college because the state was putting in proportionally a lot more money at the time. They actually got a ride from the state. It's today's students that aren't. So we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to talk about more about the research you've been doing on what we can do. What are the solutions? What are the policy solutions? How do we yep. actually, because in the first hour we talked about how the return on investment is there. There is still value in going to college, but we need to make it more affordable. So our guest, Sarah Goldrick-Rabble, will be with us when we come back. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back. I'm your host, Kristen Bry. This is Spanning the State, and we're here with Michael Michael Spaulding. And we're also talking to Sarah Goldrick-Rabb, who is a former UW professor and author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and Betrayal of the American Dream. And with the couple minutes we have left with you, Sarah, I'd love to hear more about, in your research, which included following 3,000 students for six years, um, what what can we do, whether it's at the federal level, the state level, individual universities, as far as we know that for some, not for everyone, but for going to college is still there's a re- there's a return on that investment, but the investment is just too high. So what should we be advocating for to make it more achievable for more people? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, frankly, that people have to vote like this matters to them. I know that Wisconsin voters have a lot of different priorities. There is hardly one that's going to hit them more in their wallet than the cost of college. They need to act like it. So, I mean, if you look at the book, I show you charts about all the things that have happened over decades that have affected your 42 public colleges and universities in the state. And the fact of the matter is, is their budgets have been cut on a per student basis substantially over time. The UW system is one of the least affordable systems of public higher education in the entire country. The second thing is beyond, you know, electing a governor and a legislature that wants to support higher ed and therefore help families pay for college is to hold the UW system accountable for who it gives money to. Right now in the UW system, the rich get richer. So on a per-student basis, the students at UW-Madison, the place that's hardest for the average Wisconsin person to get into, the place where people come with the most family money in hand and the best high school education, in other words, the place that should receive the least funding per student, is getting the most. 
And one of the places that's furthest behind in getting resources is UW-Milwaukee, a place where, you know, a city that frankly really needs people to be able to go to college so that they can get the skills they need need to work. Another thing that people can do is advocate for affordable housing for college students. The leading cause of student debt right now is actually not tuition, it's rent. And rent is affecting technical college students, and they're affecting all kinds of people. People think this is just about tuition. It's not. Full-time college students do not qualify for the low-income housing tax credit, which your developers across your state use to build private housing. We can change that. Your state legislators should be advocating at D.C. in order to change that. It's another example. And the last thing is this. All over the country, states are advancing supports for students' basic needs for things like food and housing and child care. But Wisconsin has not passed a bill to put people on college campuses who can help if a student is on the verge of dropping out of college over a $200 utility bill. So they are. They're dropping out and they're in debt and they don't have a degree to pay for it. It's a disaster. Sarah, is there a sense at all of sort of we've done this to ourselves, meaning that colleges have become bloated because if you look, for example, in athletics, it's sort of an arms race. You know, if the University of Illinois does something to their athletic facility. Well, then if I'm at UW-Madison and I want to recruit those players, then I'm also going to want to invest in something, not only what my competition did, but something bigger and better. So for those who say, well, cut from the college budgets, is that a helpful strategy or is that more of a talking point? Yeah, it's more of a talking point because here's the thing. I mean, there's some truth in all of that, but that truth in your state only applies at UW-Madison. And it only applies to a fraction of the problem. So if you take that argument and you swing that argument at a place like UW-Lacrosse or Stout or Milwaukee, the fact of the matter is that isn't relevant. We are also doing it to ourselves, though, to the extent that we fetishize a really small group of colleges in this country that everybody thinks they have to go to when there are more than 4,000 colleges in the United States. So we could all do ourselves a favor by shutting up about places like Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill or University of Michigan or even UW-Madison and start sending our kids to the places that offer a decent value for education, teachers in the classroom who know what they're doing with these students and who are there to teach. I think there's a joke about getting people who went to Harvard to shut up about going to Harvard and it's mm-hmm. baked in there somewhere, but there, sir, there definitely is. And so I think that's a, I think that is one of the strongest points as far as I think specifically when it comes to advocating for two year schools. I think I said at the beginning, uh, before you came, you joined us, Sarah, I started at two year school in California and it was the best thing I ever did. Not only because it was made it going to college more affordable, but also I got to learn how to go to school, which I think mm-hmm. this, this, uh, need to go to school right away and have that dream. Rethinking that is a great lesson. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah.